What do you see at the cross? Our text this morning is Luke 23, verses 33 through 43. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning that we might see Jesus, that you might bless us, that you might open our eyes, our hearts, and our hands, that we might be hearers and doers of your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife and I were driving in the Pocono Mountains of New York one winter when it started snowing. Snowing hard. The snow came down so thick that I could hardly see anything. And we had to lean up against the windshield to see the tracks of cars in front of us until those two disappeared in the snow and I was driving blind. Likewise, pride and spiritual blindness was so thick in the days of Jesus that Israel could hardly see a thing. They were driving so blind that when Jesus was fulfilling prophecy and the will of God before their very eyes, they could not see the king. See the king. Don't put up your Bibles. Luke 23. We're going to begin in verse 33. Luke 23, beginning in verse 33. And it says there, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals one on his right and one on his left. Now, every action of Jesus is deeply symbolic, including the final act of his earthly life. Now, notice it tells us here that he was crucified at the place that is called the skull. Why is Jesus' place of crucifixion called the skull? Well, if you look at it in the Greek, the word there is kranion. Sound familiar? It's where we get our word cranium from. And maybe you've wondered before why it's spoken of as Jesus being crucified on Calvary. Well, that's because the Latin word for skull is calvarium. So when the Bible was translated from Greek into Latin, it became calvarium, cranium, skull, the place of the skull. What's this all about? The idea of heads and skulls goes from one end of the Bible to the other in relation to salvation and redemption. If you go back to the headwaters promise back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the proto-evangel, after the fall, when God is cursing, laying out curses on the man, upon the woman, and upon Satan, we read these words, this curse upon Satan in regards to the woman. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise, literally break or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So at the beginning, when the promise comes after the fall, the serpent's head is going to be crushed. The serpent's skull is going to be crushed. Going on to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 33, it says, And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. How did Golgotha become the place which means the place of the skull? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Now, notice these themes all coming together here. Skull or cranium, calvarium or skull, calvary, this place called the skull, which is also called Golgotha. What's that all about? Well, it's fascinating. You have to do a little digging, a little bit of detective work. Remember when David slew Goliath, This great serpent personified as the enemy of the people of God. And David cast the stone from his sling and slew Goliath. And what did he do to Goliath? He took his armor and he cut off his head. But what happened to the head? 
Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 54, we read these words. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the armor in his tent. Now, that's the last time that the head of Goliath is mentioned. David cut off the head of Goliath, and he took it to Jerusalem. Jerusalem at this time is being occupied by Canaanitish people. In the ministry of David, during his time as king, he will conquer Jerusalem, make it the capital city. He will make Mount Moriah the place where the temple will reside, the house of God among the people of God. But at this time, not yet. Saul's king, David takes the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. What did he do with the head of Goliath? Well, church tradition tells us that he buried the head of Goliath there. Now, sometimes church stories, hagiography, stories of the saints, church traditions don't seem to hold too much water. They're all outside the word of God. But friends, I believe this is pretty tight. We've got the head of Goliath taken to Jerusalem. We know the last thing we know about Goliath's head. It was at Jerusalem. So what happens here? We've got Goliath. We've got Golgotha. We've got the place of the skull. Golgotha meaning the place of the skull. Friends, this is what's called a portmanteau in grammar. A portmanteau is where words, separate words, slowly come together in the history of a language until they become one word. So, for example, if you were living out here in Texas and you had the branch of Bear Creek and there was a village on the branch of Bear Creek, over time, branch becomes branch village becomes branchville. Look at what happened here. Goliath. Where was Goliath from? He was from the city of Gath, one of the cities of the Philistines. Goliath of Gath. Goliath from Gath became Golgath, became Golgath, became Golgatha. Golgatha means Goliath of Gath. It means the skull of Goliath. And what happens? Jesus is crucified upon Goliath, the great serpent's skull. Jesus at the cross is crushing the serpent's skull. Can I hear an amen to that? Now, it's interesting. If you look at the art of the history of the church, they recognize this. They don't have really good Christian art anymore. Here's a a painting by the Renaissance painter, Italian painter, Carlo Crivelli. Notice Jesus here crucified on the cross. And notice under the cross here is a skull. A skull representing, I believe, Goliath's skull. But it's not just about Goliath. Goliath represents the serpent. He was the great serpent of the age of David. Jesus is coming and crushing the serpent's skull. Now notice what happens here on the place of the skull where Jesus is crucified. We have a trinity of the executed. A trinity of the executed. We have Jesus, and on his right, we have an insurrectionist. And on his left, we have an insurrectionist. Will any of the goats or weeds become sheep or become wheat? Let's go on to verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Notice whom Jesus says these words about. He doesn't say this about Pontius Pilate. He doesn't say this about the religious leaders of Israel who ran lying show trials, but he's saying this directly about Roman legionnaires who had a duty to carry out the dirty work of crucifixion. Jesus has had every last of his possessions, his clothing, stripped away from him. John's gospel records that they divided his garments four ways. 
His headdress went one direction. His belt went one direction. His sandals went to another legionnaire. His robe went to another legionnaire. The inner garment would have been made of fine materials, like a priest's tunic. And you remember, they were talking about splitting it four ways, but they decided instead to gamble over it. So they cast lots, and the one who won that received Jesus' inner garment. Going on to verse 35. And the people stood by and also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The soldiers mocked him. They offered him sour wine. The sour wine would have been known as posca. It's vinegar-like soured wine mixed together with water. Takes the edge off of hard work. Roman soldiers used to drink this when they were engaged in heavy labor, and now they offer it to Jesus. The Romans, representatives of Gentile worldly power, will not see the king. They will not see the king. They save this here. They say that he saved others, let him save himself. He is the Christ of God. He is the chosen one. But notice that Israel, the leaders of Israel, will not see the king. The Romans, representatives of Gentile worldly power, will not see the king. Going on to verse 38. By the way, I missed verse 35. Let's go back there. And the people stood by watching. The rulers scoffed at him, saying he saved others. Let him save himself. He is the Christ of God, his chosen one. If so, he saved others. Let him save himself. He saved others. Let him save himself. Ironically, they can't see he is saving others. That's why he's not saving himself. You get saved, he pays the price as the Christ, the chosen one. Now let's get back to verse 38 here. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. The world mocks, but God's truth stands forever. Now this inscription was put up in mockery. King of the Jews, but it's ironic because it states truth. Put up as mockery, it states truth, for indeed, he is the king of the Jews. And remember, the Jewish nation were priests to the nation, so by extension, he is also the king of kings and lord of lords. Friends, I want to say this. The world mocks you, but God's truth stands. The world says to you, you think you're a child of God, a special child of the king? You think you have the truth in that stupid little book that you read and live your life by? Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The rebellious outlaw Israelite will not see the king. Now these men that are hung by him, you know, we often think of them as thieves. We think of them as simple criminals. Literally, they're what's called brigands. They're actually insurrectionists. I think they're likely associates of Barabbas. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. These men were like Robin Hood characters. They would go around killing and robbing Romans and those who participated in their actions with them, people like tax gatherers. They engaged in criminal activity under the guise of being those who were insurrectionists against the Roman authorities. But he will not see the king. This insurrectionist, this rebellious outlaw Israelite will not see the king. Going on to verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? 
And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Interesting, the words of the other insurrectionist. This brigand would have been familiar with Jesus. Everybody would have been familiar with Jesus. I think these insurrectionists had high hopes in Jesus. I think they were hoping he would be like Samson and David all wrapped up in one. And he's going to come and kick booty on the Gentiles kick the Romans out of the land, reestablish the kingdom of Israel. But Jesus doesn't fulfill things the way they want. And so at the end of the day, these insurrectionists now stand against the Messiah. Being familiar with Jesus, he would know that Jesus is good and innocent. He was likely a thief, terrorist, and a murderer with a murky past and a guilty conscience. He's a bit like you and I. When we stand before the king and the light shines down and we realize our sinfulness before him. Verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. With a crowd gathered in silence, religious and civil authorities and criminals mocking, out of this entire crowd, what do we see? This man of all people, this insurrectionist thief, this man sees the king. And notice what he sees through what he says. He calls him Jesus, Joshua, the great Joshua who came and brought his people into the land through the Jordan River split. This is the great Joshua who fulfills beyond the original Joshua. Notice he calls him Jesus or Joshua. Everyone else derides Jesus with titles. Notice what else he sees. He sees that Jesus is going into the afterlife, to the resurrection, And he says, remember me, remember me. Kids, remember me. Furthermore, he sees that Jesus is truly a king. How so? He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. If it's his kingdom, then he's a king. This man sees that Jesus is truly a king with a kingdom. Going on to verse 43, and he said to him, truly I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. You ever thought about that word, paradise? What does it mean? Where did it come from? It actually has its origin in Persian. Likely was brought into the Israelite language group because they'd been under the Persians, remember? They'd been carried into exile in the Babylonian Empire. And from within the Babylonian Empire, the Medes and Persians rose up and took over that empire. And it's under the Persian Empire that the Israelites are allowed to go back into the land after their 70 years of exile in the days of Ezra, Nehemiah. And the Persian language then has words that are borrowed over into the common language of the day in Israel, likely Aramaic, with borrow words from other groups. The Persian Persian origin means a king's garden. Paradise means king's garden. Why is that interesting? Well, if you look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, and you look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, about 200 years before Jesus comes on the scene, we see that the the Old Testament is translated into Greek because Greek is now the, the common parlance of the world, used a lot in synagogues. But we see here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, we see this, paradeson en Aden, paradeson, paradise in Greek. It's the same word, 
pardeson that's used here in Luke chapter 23 and verse 43, paradise. Paradise in Eden in Genesis chapter 2 verse 8. And here, truly you will be with me in paradise, a king's garden. Paul says he was caught, caught up to paradeson in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 7 it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Paradise is to be in the presence of God, to be at final rest, and to be fully alive. To see the king in his royal palace is to be with Jesus in heaven. Everyone who dies in Christ in this age, you will see the king, because today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus says that to this wicked sinner who repents on the cross. In the fall of 2004, with the presidential campaign in full swing, a friend who worked for the Republican National Committee offered me tickets to a town hall with President George Bush. I imagined an event that would have several hundred people at it, but when I got there, there were already thousands in line to see the president. After a long delay and endless speeches by local politicians, the president finally came out, but he was so far away, we could hardly see him. So at the end of the rally, I put my son Ethan on my shoulders and waded through the crowd as the president passed by. And on the way out, from that elevated perch, at least Ethan could see the president. At the cross, nearly everyone was blind and could not see what the king was doing. But one man did from his elevated perch on a cross, and so do you, you who glory in what your king did for you on the cross. As we've learned in the Gospel of Luke, that we must see the king. See the king. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us in this time and place with chaos and turmoil and apostasy all around us, help us once again to see the King, your incomparable Son. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.